Welcome to today's episode on Life in the Front Office. I'm your host, Jay Kirschman, and excited for uh, today's episode on the UMass Elusive Pathways to the Elusive GM Seat Series. Uh, here with Mike Tannenbaum. Uh, Mike has had an uh, incredible uh, career within uh, not only the sports industry, but in the NFL, and, and now um, I'm I'm just honored to be on with him as as he uh, gets in front of the camera every day now for a living on ESPN. So, Mike, really uh, looking forward to your insights and and learning a little bit about your career path. Um, look, you you know you started obviously a UMass grad. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of what your interest was, or maybe that aha moment of yeah, I want to work in sports. Yeah, great to be with you, Jake. Um, I was born in New York, but really grew up in Boston in my formative years um, in the late 70s, early 80s. And boy, that seems like a long time ago. Um, but it was really watching Red Auerbach as the, uh, the legendary coach who went on to be the, also the general manager of the Celtics and made some really interesting moves. He drafted Larry Bird as a junior eligible. He traded what turned out to be Joe Barry Carroll for both Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish. He traded Rick Roby for Dennis Johnson, traded Gerald Henderson to the Seahawks, uh, Supersonics, excuse me, that's my football background, and um, turned out to be Len Bives, who unfortunately passed away. Um, and for whatever reason, it just like, I gravitated to it, and I, I felt like, wow, like to, to run a team, like that'd be just an incredible dream. So I was just a boy growing up in Needham, Massachusetts. My dad worked in public transportation, and um, I just read the Boston Globe every day and the Boston Globe is a little bit like the USA Today where you could actually pull the sections apart. And every morning I would ask my mother uh, for the sports section and she said, you know, one day you're going to have to read the other parts of the paper because when you grow up, you're going to have to get a real job. So what was that next section in the paper that you read? It was all, it was sports for me. I didn't know anything else. And um, my first experience actually after college really crystallized it for me. So I was, uh, graduated from UMass and I had a, a business job when I graduated and um, about a month before graduating, my parents were like, look, we paid for college. You're not going to have any loans, but you're now on your own and uh, you have this incredible well-paying job and we're not going to support you anymore. And I had this inflection point of knowing like, that's really not what I wanted to do. So I turned down this offer and I went to work for the Pittsfield Mets for free and I did everything and put cheese on the nachos, right the infield. And from uh, 11 at night to seven in the morning, I actually worked at the uh, Pittsfield, Massachusetts post office in 1991, sorting mail. And uh, I worked there until I knew I had enough money to get me through the summer to pay, pay my way. And it was really based on that experience, Jake, that it really crystallized, like choose a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And that's always been a big guiding principle for me is, it's about passion and it's about loving what you do. So after I researched um, a lot more about the industry, I went to Tulane Law School because I have a program for sports law. I felt like I could pursue my dream of working in sports, but also have a traditional law degree to fall back onto if things didn't work out. And, um, you know, for people listening to this podcast, I would tell you like the number one thing about my story, Jake, is how unbelievably lucky I was. And to be more specific, for the first 75 years of pro football, there was basically like no free agency. So if you were a player and the team wanted to keep you, they basically had your rights. 
And there was a lot of litigation, 1982, 87, and in 93, there was this comprehensive settlement in the NFL where basically the owners got cost certainty in the form of the salary cap and the players got free agency. And I was unbelievably lucky because here I am at Tulane Law School and there was one team in town, the New Orleans Saints, and literally overnight because of this transformative event, the population of the front offices went from former coaches to people with JDs and MBAs. So I came in, I worked for a year and a half for free and really just observed what was going on, running people to the airport and just understanding, learning the salary cap. And I would just tell like one of the lessons I'd like to pass along is like, I was lucky. I was in the right place at the right time when all this happened. Whereas if you have to be a little bit more systematic in terms of trying to pursue a career in sports, I would say, in 2020, what, what would be the equivalent of where the NFL was in the early 90s? You know, what, what are, where are the barriers to entry a little bit lower? And how can you create value in a short amount of time? And what I did from there was I put a book together on how I would build an NFL team under the salary cap. And at the time, there was 30 teams. So I sent a book out to every head coach and every GM. And basically, I got turned down 59 times. And one guy gave me an opportunity. And for me, I was lucky. That guy's name was Bill Belichick. And he was the head coach of, uh, at the time, the Cleveland Browns. And I spent the 95 season with the Browns. Again, more of the same, running people to the airport and um, just helping out with, like, contract negotiation preparations. And then, uh, as you may know, the 95 Browns actually became the Baltimore Ravens. So had this uh, incredible moment. I uh, get let go. I drive from Cleveland, Ohio, back to my parents' house in Needham, Massachusetts. And while I'm there, uh, I get this letter. I open it up, and it's my first law school loan due. And um, I was $60,000 in debt, 27 years old, and living with my parents. And it was like, at that moment, I was like, I can't believe I went to law school. I'm such an idiot. Like, why would I do that? Because now I have all this debt from law school and no job. So I was very fortunate that... Uh, the Saints took me back, uh, went back to the Saints, and I spent the 96 season there. And then in 1997, as you may remember, Coach Parcells and Belichick, they left the Patriots and moved down to the Jets. And Coach Belichick recommended me to Coach Parcells, and um, I was very fortunate to get to the Jets in 97. I mean, between the two bills, those aren't uh, any, I don't know if there's any better names you could be associated with to start your career. But I, I, I want to go back to a point, though, you, you know, you mentioned lucky, right? And the word luck ultimately is derived from preparation, preparation meeting opportunity, right? You know, there had to have been an opportunity for you to take advantage of, and you had to have been prepared. And so I want to dive into like, how did you prepare yourself for when that opportunity did, you know, appear and um, there was that aha moment of like, Oh, I could do this and I could put this book together. I mean, the, you can't just call it lucky and, and, you know, not have done anything. Right. Yeah. No, Jake, I'm really glad you brought that up. I, I think, you know, for me just inherently, I, I'm not the most confident person there is. And I found in, in my career and in consequential meetings, preparation gives me a ton of confidence. And uh, Ron Shapiro, um, somebody that I would call one of my mentors who um, for a long time was maybe the biggest agent in baseball all through the 80s and 90s, Cal Ripken and Eddie Murray, 
the late Kirby Puckett. Um, he went on to create the Shapiro Negotiation Institute. And basically, you know, he just talks about the power of preparation and, and scripting and, you know, what are you going to wear and knowing more about the other side and they know about you. And, you know, I, I would say my preparation over the years continued to get better. And I think we brought a lot of processes, you know, start, certainly starting at the Jets. Um, but yeah, I think you know, that's exactly right. Being prepared is so important. And I think it's also about serving. So, you know, going back to working for the two bills at the Jets, it's, it was understanding what their pain point was and how could I deliver it. And they were both obviously great at coaching football. Again, the salary cap back then was still in its infancy. So the more I could bring to the table in terms of like understanding the cap, the marketplace, that's how I was able to bring value. And that helped me certainly early in my career. Yeah. And, and, as you think about your career progression and the things that you were able to learn and just by being there, right? Just by, by being able to observe and listen and take everything in and then probably ask curious questions, right? At some point to, to learn even more. Um, was there a point where your learning curve was exponentially increased because of just the situations you were in, which then kind of allowed you to move throughout your career and, and progress? 1997 to 2000, I worked for Coach Parcells. He was the head coach and GM of the Jets. In the 2000 season specifically, uh, Al Groh was our head coach. Bill P was uh, the GM, and I spent a lot of time with him. And um, I wouldn't change that period of time for anything. And I think one of the things, I tell this to people all the time, like when they go into a meeting, um, I think the most underrated aspect of any negotiation is the ability to listen. And you should walk in with 25 to 30 questions prepared that you want to ask because it's all about collecting information, learning, and being around Coach Parcells. I don't think there's a day today that I don't think about something that he taught me, mostly about life at this point, um, but certainly a lot about football as well. Yeah, and, and you mentioned that that life aspect. I mean, look, you you mentioned being, you know, uh, at a kind of an inflection point, $27,000, $60,000 in loans and living with your parents. And then you go to um, being a GM of, you know, one of the biggest NFL teams. And one would then look at that and go, oh, well, how, you know, he's got the greatest life. He's, you know, he's living at the top, right? And, and at the same time, you're probably having to completely integrate that into your life, balance it like you've never been before. Um, and make sure that you, you know, are able to have the other things like family, et cetera, uh, still, you know, intact once you're done with that job. Um, talk a little bit about the experience as a GM and just the, the time demands and, and uh, the experience as a whole and, and what you learned from it that maybe you didn't expect. Yeah, I was... Uh... Uh, boy, that's a simple question, and we could talk about this for hours, Jake. Um, I, I think for me, and I could just share my personal experience, I, I met my wife in New York. She, she had moved there for her, her own career. Um, she was very accomplished in uh, the world of marketing. So the fact that she was inherently like independent was very helpful. And the great ancient Greek philosopher Rex Ryan has a great saying, there's two types of football wives, great ones and next ones. And there is actually a lot of wisdom in that, which is these are very demanding jobs and they take up a ton of time. So 
Um, for my situation, my wife, Michelle, had a career and it was something that, um, you know, kept her certainly busy, which allowed me to do what I was very interested in doing. And I think for the people, and I, every dynamic's a little bit different and I'm by no means an expert in this, but just seeing it over the years, typically, you know, I've seen families that, you know, move together and are always together uh, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And then I've also seen the opposite of saying, where families say, hey, like, this is home for us, like we're gonna be here, and then you go work and provide for the family wherever those opportunities may take you. Yeah, and that's, you know, if you think back to that very first business job that you turned down, like that's not the situation you would think about, right? That's uh, moving away from family and, um, you know, just going to a location just to go work as opposed to totally integrating into your life. And, you know, I wanna talk about kind of that period after being a GM and, and um, going through some of the different roles that you did, then ultimately going to the Dolphins, and then um, now in kind of a new a new wave of your career and being in front of the camera. And, and now, granted, you were in front of the camera all the time, probably doing interviews and, and whatnot, but a little bit different. Would love to kind of uh, learn about how you got to that point and uh, at what point did you decide, you know, uh, no more football for right now. I'm going to go into ESPN. Yeah, so I uh, had a great run at the Jets, 16 years, seven as a general manager. Um, and as you all know, Jake, like these are not jobs you're retiring. So um, it ended, totally understood. Um, and uh, I really wanted to own something and build something. So uh, I partnered with a, a pre-existing sports agency and I started representing coaches and I represented a pro college football and basketball coaches. And had the great fortune of representing just incredible people like Steve Kerr and David Blatt, Danny Manning, Dan Quinn, Dirk Cutter. It went really, really well um, and built a very good business. And then uh, got to know Steve Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, and uh, felt like, all right, I got it. Still still got that itch. So moved down to South Florida, which is, I feel like, uh, the golf capital of the world, Jake, um, although my game does not meet the uh, surroundings that I'm in. <laughs> and um, had a great, great experience with the Dolphins. We, we had identified and won with the right quarterback, Ryan Tannehill. You know, unfortunately, he couldn't stay healthy. Ultimately, that cost us. Um, and, um, you know, Adam Gase and I uh, had a good run together for three years. And when that ended, um, just trying to be thoughtful about the next steps for myself, ESPN was an incredible opportunity Um just in terms of there's so many people in the world, Jake, that will tell you what's going to happen, you know, breaking news, Twitter, Instagram, social media, uh, the way pro football is covered. It's, it's 24 hours a day, but my role in the play is very fundamental. I'm telling you like why it's happening and taking you behind the scenes. So candidly, it's an honor and a privilege to be affiliated with the best of the best. Um, and I really wanted to challenge myself. I liked getting outside my comfort zone. I liked being with, you know, teams and I liked owning my own business. And now I like doing some other things that, again, I can learn and grow and develop. And um, I've uh, done a couple other things. Like I started a football think tank called the 3013. There's 32 teams in the NFL and we get together once a week. It's a bunch of former head coaches, GMs grad students and we just talk about the issues of the week and um, you know my passions really are about learning getting better and helping others get to where they want to go and uh, I'm going to start uh, 
teaching a course this fall at Columbia University in their uh, master's program around football. Um, so it keeps me very close to the game and, and a lot of friends in and around, you know, teams, but it's allowed me to put myself in other areas where I feel like I can grow and develop. Yeah. And, and, you know, for the career that you've had, one would say, well, Mike's only got one passion, it's football. Uh, but clearly you've got a lot more passions than just football, right? And that happens to be a, a lot of the context in which you live in. But, you know, you mentioned teaching and giving back. And I, I want to touch on that point because I know you're passionate about it. And um, as you went throughout your career, were there points where you couldn't give back as much as you wanted to, but you really did? Um, and then at the same time, you know, you were able to then leverage kind of where you were sitting to be able to give back even more so um, to those who are trying to get into the industry and, and um, you know, have a similar path to yourself. Yeah. So I, I would say two things really influenced me in this, in this area. One is my dad. So my dad had basically two jobs growing up. He worked for the uh, MTA in New York City and then the MBTA in Boston. So two public transportation um, organizations and really provided for my sister and I and always gave us more for us than he had and um, I would share this with many people but just to, for context he had actually never owned a new car and um, the first new car he owned was when I became the general manager of the Jets and I bought it for him and he was just one of those people that like served others before himself so um, what I was able to do at that point is my wife and I created a scholarship at the University of Massachusetts uh, to honor both my parents where uh, we actually give out stipends to students who want to pursue a career in sports, um, but can't necessarily afford their living expenses because they could volunteer or get an unpaid internship. So I, I want to just help others achieve their dream the way I was able to achieve mine. And then um, one of the people that really has impacted my career really way more for off the field than anything he ever accomplished on, but Curtis Martin and Kurt always talks about to whom much is given much is expected. And um, I just feel like I know how lucky I've been and how good so many people have been to me that if I can open up one door, make one phone call, help one other person get to where they want to go. I feel like that's, you know, really like the least I can do given the fact that I grew up in Needham, Massachusetts, reading the Boston Globe having this dream to, hey, look at what Red Auerbach gets to do every day. And I got to do that with two teams. And uh, I know how special and lucky that is. No, it's incredible. And, and I think, you know, look, that's, that's why we started this podcast and, and uh, really fortunate to be on with you and, and share that same mission and story. And I, I want to I hit on one thing. Let's go back to kind of your time at law school. Um, you know, put yourself back in those shoes and in that decision to go. And, you know, I know you mentioned – um, kind of finding, being able to find that niche within the industry. But for those, you know, looking at different types of schools right now, um, listening to this going, uh, maybe I've got my MBA, but should I go to law school or I've never considered law school? What's it like? <laughs> I mean, Tulane's one of the best law schools there are. So, you know, you got quite the experience and um, I'm sure you had, you had your fair share of uh, Cafe Dumont coffee there. Yeah, actually, let me say this, Jake. Law school is really hard. Um, you know, I, I have it actually around here, although my wife cleans up every 10 minutes, so I can never find things. But anyway, this book right here, I'm going to use as part of teaching uh, in the fall. And this is really, really hard. I found law school to be uh, extremely challenging just in terms of the time it took 
to read. I was reading probably on average about 100 pages a day, but I'm proud to tell you that academically, my worst semester in law school was better than my best semester as an undergrad. Um, and I either was reading or I was at the Saints facility. So any only Cafe Dumont I had, Jake, was to go. I wasn't hanging out eating beignets with powdered sugar. My competition was, but I was working my ass off to beat them. That's right. Well, you know, every once in a while, beignet probably couldn't hurt. But, um, you know, when, when you think about uh, the lessons that you learned from law school and, and just maybe the thought processes and perspectives that it gave you, um, what's maybe one or two that others could take uh, from you in, in that sense of what it, what it allows you to think or how it allows you to think? Yeah, I think foundations of arguments um, really helped me as a critical thinker and really as a negotiator. So if I said, hey, Jake, you know what, like, we're going to pay you, uh, you know, $10 to do this podcast. Like, that's something I probably would have said in college. I would say now, hey, Jake, if you're going to do this podcast, we want this to be a fulfilling experience, both economically and non-economically. We're going to go through the market. We're going to go through, like, why we feel what our position is, um, understand the precedents, which ones are you know, more appropriate than others, and then um, try to come up with a solution that's good for everybody. Um, and candidly, the other part about uh, law school for me in particular that was very fulfilling is um, Tulane had a mandatory um, community service uh, sort of obligation as part of getting our degrees. Um, and to volunteer in that New Orleans area, um, I work for a public defender. I just, could, I couldn't tell you, what an unbelievable experience. I wish I did more of it. And just to realize, and I'm not saying innocent or guilty, but just to understand, you know, the economic challenges some people in our country have is beyond enlightening. And I, I grew up, again, I didn't have everything growing up, but I grew up in, with a, a two-parent family in the Northeast. Um, and to be exposed to some of those situations was really consequential in like my sort of like development and understanding of there's a lot else going on in our country that, you know, most of us really aren't aware of. Yeah. And, and as sports, you have a platform to be able to influence uh, what's going on around you and in your communities. Um, what was maybe one part, whether, you know, dolphins, uh, jets, when you first started that you were able to do within the community that kind of gave shed a different perspective on, on uh, your job as well. You know, I think it was, again, I could tie Coach Parcells and um, law school together, which was he gave me an unbelievable opportunity. He was the head coach and general manager of the team. I'm 27, and I was the head negotiator of the team. Like, he trusted me with agents, and I was preparing about all the wrong things. So, for example, um, I, I could tell you if we were signing a linebacker, um, everything about the linebacker market. And he was much more about, tell me about, the person you're talking to, what's their background? What are their goals? What are their insecurities? Is this the first contract they've ever done? Is this the hundredth contract? Are you going to see this person in person? Is it on the phone? Um, what are the words you're going to use? How are you going to influence that person? How are, you the, how are you going to be able to influence this person for them to trust you? And it was just, he brought my level of preparation and, and insights to, to really high levels. You know, you mentioned the preparation piece. I know we talked about that earlier. Um, and as we start to wrap up the episode, I want to talk about what you're doing now and, and how you prepare because people probably see you on the camera and they're like, ah, oh, he's, 
you know, he's, he's got all that knowledge up there. Right. And, and, but at the same time, like, there's a lot of preparation that goes into that. Um, give us a little insight as to what's behind the camera. Yeah, Jake, uh, uh, like, first of all, ESPN, generally speaking, it's the best of the best. Like, look, I've been, you know, in the media now for about 10 minutes. So like, I know nothing, but the people I'm around are really impressive. And like, I'll give you one example. There's a show called Get Up that's uh, hosted by a gentleman named Mike Greenberg. And I, it's like, I try to explain to my kids, like, the show's really good, but let me tell you why. The show ends at 10 a.m. East Coast time. If you're on the next day, the first email is probably around like between 11 and 12. And throughout the day, you, you reply to emails with certain thoughts. Then around 6 o'clock that night, 6 p.m., you'll speak to a producer and go very specific about how you feel on certain topics that they think will be on the show. Then the next call is at 6 a.m. the next morning for another 30 minutes, updates, new insights. What do you want to say? And in that meeting, things are sort of crystallized. And then the show's on from 8 to 10. So by the time you're seeing the show 8 to 10, there's been about 12 to 14 hours of email correspondence. There's been a one-on-one -on -one call with the producer. And then there's another call with the group as a whole about exactly how the show's going to go. So by the time it's on the air, it's the third or fourth iteration. And it's way better than what the uh, email started off with earlier. And to me, you know, preparation, you know, going back earlier to what we talked about, Jake, like for me, like preparation gives me confidence. Like I can't go on the air sounding, you know, however coherent I may sound without like those steps. And the show is really good because they're really like beholden to a really dogmatic process. No, that's, it's, thank you for those insights in terms of, you know, explaining that process. I don't think people understand how much goes into it. Um, and as we wrap up the episode, I, I, I want to do a, a quick rapid fire uh, for you as, as I'm sure you, you've done one or the one or two of these before, but um, any golf course that you could play in, and as we're doing this zoom right now, I'm looking at your band and dunes picture, but any golf course that you could play in the, in the, country and or the world uh, that you would pick right now? Jake, this is a shameless plug. Like, I'm doing this podcast because I'm assuming that you and I are going to go play Augusta. So <laughs> I, it's not a matter of if. I'm just curious when we're going to be playing. So for me, it would be Augusta. It's on my bucket list. Um, I've come close to playing there. I have not done so, but I would really like to do that one day. And that, and that is a hint, by the way. <laughs> on on the record and uh we'll who who knows we'll we'll see uh what the powers may hold uh okay. mike as you you know have moved from city to city to city what's the what's the favorite city that you've lived in and what's your favorite part about that city boy you know there's probably a little bit of uh, elements of all of them but my hometown of Needham, massachusetts is the best because I feel it was like the best of everything. Um, four seasons. I love changes. Uh, I love the city of Boston. I love uh, how you can get out of it so quickly. Um, but there were parts of Cleveland that I thought were great, like about like what our country, you know, was all about. Um, the part of New Jersey where the New York Jets facility is, Somerset County, Morris County is beautiful. Um, I've lived in really great places and obviously South Florida you know, seven months a year, you know, the weather, you, you absolutely can't beat it here. 
as you think about football and all of the, the, you know, experiences that you've had, if you could be on the field, what position would you play? Tight end. I, I like to, you know, be involved with all facets of the game, run game, you know, let's just say I'd be a run game tight end. Like, you know, I'm not going to create space in the passing game. So I would say a run blocking tight end. Not a, not a Zach Ertz, huh? No, no one's going to confuse me with Zach Ertz. <laughs> no, now people may confuse my wife with Julie Ertz, but that's a story for another day. She was a gymnast. So. Well, on that note, I think uh, we wrap up this episode. Mike, Really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for your, your insights, your advice, your wisdom, uh, and certainly understand, look, you know, listening to you, we, we all can understand why you have been successful throughout your career and, and continue to be. So uh, looking forward to, to watching you behind the camera and, um, you know, hopefully we'll have you on again in the near future and, and definitely get out on the golf course. That sounds great, Jake. Really appreciate you having me. Love what you guys are doing here. Happy to take a, you know, play a small part. And uh, I'm glad that you're inspiring others to get to where they want to go. So thank you.